Hello Phoenixers and welcome at the PAVE podcast, created for the professional working to end the violence against women and children. I'm Marianne, your host, and today I'm honored to talk with Manisha Taylor. Manisha Taylor is a trained head teacher who previously worked as a deputy head in a primary school. She has always had a passion for football and her personal experience of becoming a young carer 20 years ago inspired her to develop work around mental health using sport. In 2013, she received a Woman in Football Award at the Asian Football Awards and was honored with an MBE in the 2017 New Year's Honors List for her services to football and diversity in sport. She tutors for the FA Delivering Equality Education. She has recently published a teaching resource to help teachers and parents create open dialogue around different issues concerning well-being and our mental health. It is titled Child in Mind and available to purchase on Amazon. Today we will discuss why Manisha founded Sregalicious, where she helps people with a mental health disorder to connect via football, how to run a business with limited resources, how Manisha cope with loss, anger, frustration and sadness, after her brother became traumatized after extensive bullying, choosing her brother's happiness over her own dreams until he can take care of himself and having peace with that decision. You can find the show notes, links and references at www.alianaloyga.com But because my name is quite difficult, you can also go to pavepodcast.com and you will go to the same website. Let's get started. What was that special moment that caused you to say, this is it. I'm going to pursue a career in football. I'm going to stand up for people with mental illnesses. And how became the combination of football and mental illness calling? It's something I've been thinking about uh, over, over a number of years through my personal experiences. But one of the biggest challenges was around um, financial stability. So when you are to embark on a career change, um, it's you, you're, you're reinventing yourself. So one of the things for me was, well, how would I financially survive and live? But in terms of the trigger that made me just think I have to do it, which is where I then didn't really have time to actually go into how will I earn? What will I do? How will I do it? Was when um, my one day, you know, I'd been coaching for Rachel Yankees football program part-time. So, um, and this was after I'd taken my career change when my mum had a triple heart bypass and also I was um, trying to complete my master's. So this was in 2011 and it was just one day that I came home and my brother saw me in my kit and he'd been seeing me in kit in where he would have been used to over a number of years seeing me in smart dress through my teaching work. And football was our love and passion, so it's something that we always shared. And I noticed that there were some changes within him. So he would go over to the equipment, he would stare and he would have a look and he would smile. And he just turned around and he just said, Manisha, football. And the football element, I knew that there was a connection. And pretty much I then made the decision that I would pursue something and I think because I didn't actually have the time to think about the how and the what I would actually do it was just um, impulse and it was what he said that made me think 
I have to do something. But at that time, I didn't know what it was going to be. It was, I had to do something. And in the first in instance, it was to help him and to help him try and gain full recovery to how he was when we were 18. If I move on now, it's made me realize actually this is more than just about him. This is actually about other people like him, other people like my mum who were the primary carers, other people like myself and my younger sister who are also involved as a family um, that can help not just those who suffer with mental health and disability, but also those who are support workers and carers that can use sport. So where I use football, but use sport as a whole to help um, those with mental illness and disability integrate within our society and develop lots of social and communication skills so that they don't feel isolated and that they don't feel as though that they are not wanted. So that, that was pretty much my trigger. And I think it helped that I didn't actually have the time to think about it. Can you please introduce yourself to the listener? And because I have seen that you do amazing work, but for the people who don't know you, can you tell a little bit about yourself? Yep. Um, my name's uh, Manisha Taylor. I am a former deputy head teacher. I trained as a head teacher, so I received my or passed my MPQH, which is the National Professional Qualification for Headship, in 2011. I worked pretty much across different boroughs in London in terms of my teaching roles. Um, I'm primary. My work is predominantly in primary schools. I was always involved in football, but very much at a grassroots and community level. I didn't actually have any coaching qualifications when I was first doing work in my school capacity. It was pretty much just from what I liked and what I enjoyed. And we also, when I was teaching in the different schools, particularly around when I first started so in 2001, didn't have enough after school clubs or lunchtime facility for children to take part in. So football was one of the things that I then you know, volunteered and started up and that pretty much carried in the different schools that I worked in. What I also did was liaise with governing bodies and did lots of work around integrating education. So particularly around numeracy and literacy and how we can engage with some of the children who perhaps were underachieving, however, had a love and passion for sport. So combining the football plus the education helped actually facilitate their learning. And, and in, in the return, what we saw was some of their, you know, they, they were making a lot more progress than they were before. So a lot of my work then was, a, it was strategic. So it was around liaising with governing bodies and getting external partners in who could deliver some of that program. And I would just monitor. I actually got my coaching qualifications where I began that journey, 2009. So that's when I, I prior to that met Rachel Yankee, who formerly played for Arsenal in England, and she did a lot of work in Brent. And one of the schools that I worked in when I was an assistant head was also in Brent. So we got we were talk, we got talking, and she then said to me, "Oh, you did you know that there were coaching qualifications?" I said, "No." So she introduced me to um, the local county FAs where I could then go online and have a look to see how I could actually gain them. So that's when I, I, I got my level one in 2009. And then Rachel also, as part of her grassroots and community work, founded a grassroots club for children called Gibbons Records. And that was based in Northwest London. And it was purely run by volunteers. So I then started to 
to help you know help there I worked with the under sevens the under eights and the under nines and I was there for about four to five years and it was great because you know you had so many children who otherwise wouldn't have um, a chance to perhaps play you know structured football and although this was you know non-competitive they did have training sessions every Saturday morning and those who were able to were playing games every Sunday so it was great and like I said it was run by purely by volunteers and if it wasn't for the you know for people like us who, who, who did volunteer then there wouldn't be an infrastructure for these kids and you'd be there really early um I remember we'd you know do a walk around our area as to where we were going to coach pick up any dog mess and scoop it up and any glass and any bits that, you know, might be of danger because those people who do work at the very community level will know that you actually don't have grounds people, kit people. You, you know, we wash the bibs, we wash the kit, we um, scoop up any of the, you know, the dog mess and pick up all the bits that might be hazardous to the children. So, um, you, you know, it was a great experience and I really enjoyed my time there. And uh, I was still teaching, though, when I was doing the voluntary coaching. And um, it was only the actual, you know, when I took the career change was 2011. But I still kept with the full-time teaching and the coaching. So from the grassroots and community work, I then was volunteering at Middlesex at the Girl Centre of Excellence. And um, it was, for me, it was trying to get a transition into working with perhaps elite players and working at a centre. It's, it's very competitive, um, you know, an extremely competitive industry. So I then carried on with my coaching qualifications and I got my level two. And I, from initially volunteering at Middlesex's play development centre with the girls, I then got appointed. And then I vol when I was still volunteering at the actual centre, I then got appointed as head coach there too. And then became centre manager of the whole centre where I over was overseeing the under 17s, sorry, from the under nines right up to the under 17s, uh, liaising with the England Talent Scouts uh, for our girls, parental liaison. I was also the, um, head of welfare and safeguarding. And what was great was there was a lot of transition between me being a strategic lead in schools to then transferring that to actually lead in a centre of excellence. The only differences were the nuances of the football culture, which was very different to the school culture. Stakeholders are different. Um, however, in some, you know, say in some respect, people um, and attitudes were, were, were very similar. You know, that from, you know, the parents' perspective is they want the best for their children. And likewise, in schools, they want the best for their children in terms of their academic learning. So those things were the same in terms of how you lead um, and deal with and manage with emotions and manage with people, being organized, um, you know, being able to multitask and do multiple things, how you would uh, speak in front of different target audiences. Those were very transferable. So it was, it was for me, timing wise, quite good to get into that role. And later in that, in, later in my football, I say, um, experience, because I had a good 10 years of the, strategic lead experience from working in schools and that then led me on to gaining a role at QPR's academy which is where I'm at now in two and a half years I've been there and that's a professional football club and um, pretty much that came about through networking because a lot of my other work is is still very much in education but I subcontract so I 
I'm very closely working with the Football Association and I deliver all their equality and mandatory education. I work with um, Show Races and the Red Card and I deliver their equality education in schools. So that's primary, secondary, colleges, and I also deliver the teacher training to help teachers embed equality and diversity within their curriculum. In addition to that, sometimes I get called to the universities and deliver lectures because the great thing now in terms of the teaching degrees to, I guess, to when I first did it was that because of the current climate and the current culture around inclusion, uh, there is a lot more information for teachers and young people around how they can embed inclusive practices within within what they're doing so it gives me an opportunity to then actually go and lecture and and say that what I used to be you I was you in 2001 where I just finished my teacher training and uh, you know and the link to football with show races and the red card is that the team is actually made up of coaches and ex-professional footballers so I perhaps may not come from a, a professional playing background my playing was pretty much Sunday league and just kicking the ball around for fun um, but I, I definitely can help with the education and the coaching side of it. Can you give me an example or tell me a little bit more about the equality education? That so it, it looks at different protected characteristics and I'll also I'll, I'll bring in the mental health into that as well so um, with the with the FA uh, they through their strategic plan what's really good is that they are very clear in their direction on how to ensure that there is equality across the board and an equal playing field for all people so their tagline of football for all would be for those who might be you know asian uh, black ethnic minority uh, women and girls those who might be you know gay lesbian um transgender, bisexual, so a range of protected characteristics. The work that I would predominantly focus on would be around um, gender, race, race and ethnicity, religion, and mental health and disability. However, with show races and the red card, there's been some projects around hate crime, which also includes LGBT too. So some of that work with Show Races on the Red Card is going into certain boroughs where the PCC have funded it because they've seen an increase in hate crime in, in particular boroughs where certain groups have been targeted. So therefore, there's an education program that we would go and deliver to young people just to generate open discussion around that. But with the FA, it predominantly is around um, looking at, you know, gender, race, like I said, race, religion, ethnicity, and also perhaps some parts of the LGBT too. However, the focus work is a little bit more with Show Race and the Red Card, particularly with the young people. In terms of mental health, I've recently, um, with, a, with a group of other people, um, been asked to sit on the FA's yeah. mental health yeah. steering group which recently with a group of other people too, I've been asked to sit on the FA's mental health steering group. It, that's, you know, an exciting opportunity because it, it allows me to also better understand uh, the FA's strategic priorities around mental health. Because with the project that I run with Wingate and Finchley Football Club is very much grassroots community. And it's also linked to a non-league club. So I wasn't aware so much about... EFA priorities and where where mental health sits within 
what they want to work on. So it's a good opportunity for me to understand that and then link it back to the project that I run, which allows adults like my brother who have mental health or a disability that they can come along to a program that allows them to access football for free. They, some of them come with their support workers. Wingate and Finchley Football Club have been great because they sponsor me their facility once a week and we run it in six week blocks. I, I volunteer. I've also got a partnership now with Middlesex County FA. They provide me with a volunteer. So Byron, he's an apprentice and what's great is he's deaf and he plays for the actual England deaf 11 aside and futsal team. So wow. he's a he's a brilliant role model, and also it's a great opportunity to, for him as an apprentice to learn how to run a project, how to liaise with different types of people, but also to inspire those who attend to show that you know I may have a disability, but actually look what I can achieve or look what I'm achieving. So it, it's great to have Byron there as well. I've now managed to recently just um, get a little bit of funding from Fans for Diversity. So I've got Janki, who's um, a female coach of Asian heritage, and she's been coming down to help me. And what that little bit of funding does is just allow me to pay for some of her expenses. But at the moment, um, it's, it's really hard because as much as there's a need for a project, there's a real lack of resource, like financial resource. So it means that you're running the project on your own earnings because you want it to be sustainable. How sustainable it is though when you're running it on your own earnings, I don't know, but it's, you know, it, it, what we've now tried is doing it in blocks. So where I go six week block, we then break another six week block and we then break to see one, if we can sustain numbers by doing it in that way particularly because the vulnerability around the adults that attend. The other thing is in England, the weather. <laughs> so we, only have, uh, we have access to an outdoor facility. What we don't do is have access to somewhere indoors. So it, you know, it's great because we have really new 3D pitches that, you know, that the adults can use. But we sometimes have to call the sessions off because of the, the poor weather and the rain um, because there's no shelter. So what the six-week blocks will also allow us to do is to kind of tailor it to oh, when, the, when the season is warm. And also for me financially, it will reduce cost because it means then in terms of the expenses, I am not having to pay as much to if I was running it once a week for, um, for 12 months. So it's, it's trying to find ways of managing it. But, you know, I, I, I did say to myself that whether I get – 200 pounds of funding to to a thousand to whatever it might be um i'm, I'm going to run it anyway so it's great to have you know a few hundred pounds from fans for diversity um but i do i understand myself that i'm just going to have to work a lot more so that i can sustain it so that i have people like Jangi who can learn and develop as a coach and help me out i've got you know byron and the partnership with middlesex which is great because he comes voluntarily as part of the middlesex program to help out so it will just help, you know, the adults have a really good experience. So that's it. That you can only do this because you have an enormous drive inside of you and you have to be very creative to just keep this going. It's really impressive. <laughs> Thanks. I just think that um, sometimes it's, you have to really think about what matters. And when my br brother became unwell, 
it dawned on me that there must be other people like him and um, because mental health is still such a taboo and not spoken about as much, mm-hmm. particularly within ethnic minority communities, if I am in a position to be able to help, then my struggle will help others. Mm-hmm. So it's for me, like I said earlier on, that it ha- I have it has to run. It has to run because I, with liaising with my brother service providers over, you know, 16, 17 years now, that there is a real lack, particularly within our borough where we live, a real lack of physical activity for adults like my brother to access. So because there's such a financial cut for the NHS within mental health, it means that a lot of those part of that have to pay for things, but actually there weren't that many activities and things for them, particularly within sport. And this is, I'm talking about the borough that I live in. You know, there are some boroughs who, who have a lot um, of activities and a lot of, you know, a lot of resources, which is great. So because I, I soon realized that there was a lack of resource, I thought at the very least, if I can start something up that runs for one hour once a week, you know, I can try, I will do my best to earn on the other days. But, you know, from a personal um, perspective, it, it has to run. Can you describe, because I'm the mom of twins and I already told you this uh, beforehand, but when I see how close my children are and they are boys, but um, I have also a friend who is mom of uh, a, a twins, boy and girl, so they are close as well. Did it? help you um helping your brother this way to um handle his to find a way to help him with his disease to did it give you some peace for yourself or in in any way so so that you just could do something to make him feel better yes it it definitely helped with one me helping myself Hmm. find a coping mechanism because I've lived with a lot of anger and I'm still very angry. I'm angry about how people can treat him in that way and actually get away with it. You know, his bullying was, was very extreme and he'd, he'd gone through a lot of trauma psychologically through the years, which is why, which it manifested into him being in the way that he is now. So, you know, I was ang- very angry about what had happened and was struggling to find a way of emotionally being able to deal with a loss in the sense that, like you described, we were inseparable. We did everything together. You know, we went to the same school. We had the same friends. We'd play the same games. And it was really difficult to go from that to all of a sudden actually not being able to talk to him. So he's been non, he he hears voices, so he talks to those voices, but he doesn't communicate to us as people. And he's he's been like that for about 15 years now. So trying to find a way of managing that loss to having somebody who was a completely normal child and as a result of very extreme trauma, now being in a position where he's struggling to find himself, he's struggling to know who he is, his surroundings, 
that that was really difficult and I actually came away from football and just engrossed my mind into teaching which is probably why I became a deputy head and I trained as a head I was only 31 that was that's very young but that's very I, young indeed it's very young yeah and I invested a lot of time into work and I found a way of fueling my anger and frustration just into wanting to be successful because I knew that my brother always, he was very academic. He wanted to be successful equally. So it was, I needed to find a way of struggling, um, coping with that. And one day I was teaching in a school in Northwest London and the kids were playing outside and they were playing football and it, I don't know, it just, I just decided to go out there and it made me think about how much, when I missed it, but also what harm would it really do if I was to reconnect with, with the game? What harm would it do? So that then had, you know, had an impact on me creating the mental health program later on. And through that, I found a way of reconnecting with my brother and my emotions and then likewise helping him become a lot more um, aware, develop his concentration, develop his hand-eye coordination and other things. But most importantly, a way of channeling how angry I was. Mm. I, I'm not as angry anymore. I, I think I would... If I was to say that I have forgiven, I'd probably be lying. But, <laughs> but that's hard. Um, it, it is, and I and I think it it always will be. Mm. It's been twenty years now. Feel that I'm not sure if I would ever feel that the situation is okay, purely because what people perhaps may not realise initially is the impact it has on everybody involved. So first and foremost, it's the person who is actually suffering. But when that person needs care, the f ultimately for us, it was everybody chips in and the family take care of him. But then as a result, we have to make sacrifices. So my mum made sacrifices, my dad's made sacrifices, so is my sister. I chose to sacrifice some of the things that I might like to do as a woman which would be, so I'm 38, but I sacrificed. I made a decision that I wouldn't go and get married or have kids until I know that my brother is in a position where he can actually take care of himself. And I'm still striving for that to happen. And I also understand myself that at 38, if I continue, you know, it'd be very difficult for me later on now, I feel, you know, if I wanted to, to have children, it'd be very difficult just physically and also you know um the, the stage where I am in my life and my career too because of taking the career change but I chose that and I chose the life that I have now but don't you think I, I'm just trying to understand um that those two could exist next to each other your happiness and still trying to make him happy can't they coexist? Wouldn't be your brother? Um, would be? Would he be happy to know that you 
have your support in someone to love you as well? Like Maybe. But the, the difficulty is, is that my mom's now a heart patient. Uh, so it's not just that there's so that there's other there's what there's, there's so many other factors to consider mm. my mum had a triple heart bypass due to the long-term stress so she now works part-time and she's a heart patient um my mum and dad are also a lot older you know they're in their 60s it, it, they get tired my dad semi-retired you know with his work my sister, she, there's 13 years between us and she wants to go and get married in a few years time with her partner. So there's a lot to consider. And for me, it's not a sim, it wasn't a simple decision. No, it, it was it's very much hard. It was considered an enormous sacrifice. But I chose it. So I always say to people, I'm not going to say, oh, I don't mind. <laughs> I chose it yeah. and what I'm happy with is the way that I am still living my passion and being able to help but also that I'm fulfilling the calling or the purpose for whatever that might be and I'm still not a hundred percent on what that is but as a part of that I do believe that there must be a reason as to why this or my circumstance came about. I don't believe that it happened I for a just, reason. Yeah, I do believe that it happened. It's happened for a reason, and and I feel that my choices or my decisions in life and those sacrifices are just part and parcel of that. So I'm not angry about that at all. And in fact, you know, I I love the way that I live my life. I love waking up every morning because I actually love I love what I do. And I don't see it's important thing. Yeah, I, I and I love the fact that I have so much variety. I'm still involved with working with children and young people. I've been able to develop myself as a teacher because I've also had the opportunity through the governing bodies to deliver teacher training and adult training and also work in colleges and secondary schools. But likewise, this passion and love for football, you know, it working at QPR and I, I'm learning so much. And I know that my brother would be really pleased because he loved football. And, and I always, you know, Chris Ramsey, who's my, who's my boss, I always say to him that one day, you know, if my, my brother is able to talk or no, I know he would be so happy to know that I'm actually in a professional football club. So those things drive me to carry on and, and try and get over the adversity. But it also helps me cope. So if I feel if that was taken away, I'm not sure how much uh, I would be able to just deal with it because I probably would keep thinking about some of the sadness. So it helps me overcome that. But like I said, I think everything happens for a reason. And I do believe that this situation is there for a reason. And perhaps one of those reasons is actually to think about your own situation. And if you're in a position to help others who may be in that situation, you just have to do it. Like you have to do it. Maybe I'm a little bit personal and this is not a question that I thought about before. Uh, so if I'm too personal, just say it. Do you? Uh, but I'm going to say it. But <laughs> if I'm going too far, just let me know. Do you? Because do you exp <laughs> experience feel? Because emotions can be so tricky. And I, I really relate to that part of um, 
stay in Singapore for a while because I chose to be um, single for years. And but do you experience some kind of guilt towards your brother? Because I could also relate to that because you are well healthy and um, you experience life to the fullest and you're full of passion because you radiate when you talk and it's really awesome to see but seeing your brother suffer like this do you feel some kind of guilt towards him i did for a very long time very long time which is where I felt I was not living my life in this situation. I was allowing the situation to control me because I did feel guilty about him being health, him not being able to do the things that I, I do. And it was only been about three years, probably three to four years where I am now in a place where I don't feel guilty if I get called to go and work internationally. You know, I will do the things that I want to do in my life through the day. Whereas before, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, wouldn't have done that. So there's a real change in me in the sense that I'm a lot happier with me. And I think that has to come first is yes. I'm a lot more secure mm-hmm. with living with the situation. And I'm a lot happier with understanding how to be happy within it. So because I am now living my life to the fullest that I can, I don't feel that guilt. And it, what it has done actually for the benefit has inspired me more to keep believing that he will gain recovery. So my, I've had that transition from the guilt to now being able to live my life to the fullest within the situation. Beautiful. I can't say anything else. I'm so happy that you found yourself along the way because it must have been a really tough road. I can only say that I really respect you for going through that and and becoming who you are now. It's really amazing. And I really want to make a little shift to Svegalicious. <laughs> Because I really want to know how did you came up with that awesome name? <laughs> <laughs> actually, and I didn't. I actually didn't oh. come up with the name. Child, the children did. It oh, really? Was, yeah, it just so happened I was working with a group of children and uh, they named their team. One of them came out with Swagalicious. And I said, oh, wow, that's really good. And <laughs> I was just I was self-employed. So from that transition of coming out full time and I didn't have a brand or anything as such, it was pretty much just working through being self-employed. And the teacher in me wrote down Swagalicious and I concept mapped what this could mean. And actually, if it was going to run as a brand, what would it symbolize? What would people think about it? So what I did was spend a year talking to different groups of people in football, in education, teachers, head teachers, coaches, and what they would think of the name if they heard it. And of course there was a mixture, but the very essence of it for me was around, is it fun? Does it, does it, you know, epitomize or uh, symbolize young people, something that children would be attracted to? 
And pretty much, yes. And that's what I wanted. I didn't want something under my name because I was thinking long term that I actually wanted a brand that I could bring other people into. And one of them also being for my brother. So Swagalicious was the children have really helped me out with the name. And for me, like I said, it was about something being fun. And under the umbrella of Swagalicious, I've got the key projects around mental health, which also includes Child in Mind, which is uh, a recent project uh, which helps children with not just mental health, but helps all children in primary schools initially. And this is, I would say, for year two upwards. So so we'd probably say around eight eight years old to, to 12 years old help generate discussion around different topics, whether that's bereavement, bullying, feeling left out, an emotional roller coaster, the feeling of pressure when you're going through exams and tests, a life of a refugee. So thinking about now, given the current climate around uh, migrants and refugees, if children do have migrants and refugees in their in their class are they aware of the trauma that these children might have gone through what they might have seen in these war-torn countries are teachers equipped with the skills or the resource on how to openly generate discussion around these topics so child in mind is, is personal but also supplements the the book publication that i have which is a teaching resource with detailed lesson plans and supplemented resources so that's a that sits under the Swagalicious umbrella, but so does the soccer schools and the community work, which is working with uh, the local temple. So I have a close link with the temple in in, London, in Kingsbury, where I run just day soccer schools through the holidays. And pretty much it's just myself and if I can get some volunteers to help. But for the children who don't just attend the temple, but those who are part of that part of the wider community in the area, And the on the road is, as it says, really, which is delivering the on the road programs, which would be your one one day workshops. That's where I would include the one day workshops with the FA, which I raised in the red card, with anything that I then get independently with some of the other governing bodies I've worked with. So I've, I've got the key projects and I, but the underlying themes are around empowering girls and women and trying to inspire them to want to participate in football, particularly those around ethnic minority communities and Asian communities where prior football particularly would have been seen as something that boys do and mental health and disability. And of course, the, the, you know, the equality education. So those are the things that will pretty much sit under, under the Swagalicious umbrella. So it's using football and education to empower other people. And what do you tell the girls to empower them? that adversity and challenges are a part and parcel of life and that if they can be develop confidence and build resilience then actually they can overcome those obstacles and become change makers and I think just that whole idea and concept around empowering them to be these change makers to then go and change the world or change the the landscape of how particularly within football, how that is perceived for girls, for those from ethnic minority communities. So I want them to be change makers. I want them to go off and coach in a professional football club. 
be a referee in the Premier League or do the work around administration and education because there is or business there are so many roles in football clubs now that yes. resilience and confidence and become role models themselves so yeah, absolutely <laughs> that ripple effect again when you are old and this is something i asked every guest so far but it never get, gets boring because every answer is so different from the other But when you are old and you are looking back to your life, what do you want to have accomplished? Oh. What is the desired outcome of your work or life? For my work, my desired outcome would be the to change the landscape of how mental health is viewed, particularly within ethnic minority communities. And if we can use the power of sport and football to empower not just those who suffer with mental health, but support workers, carers, governing bodies, service providers. That for me in years to come would be an accomplishment. On a personal level, it's to be able to work full time in a professional football club and to one day go off and achieve my A license. So on a personal level, in terms of a football accomplishment, that for me would be a personal achievement. But through my work, it, it definitely would be around mental health and disability. And I think if I was to join both of those together, ultimately, if other females can be empowered to work in a professional football club, become a coach and do those things that perhaps would have 10, 15, 20 years be, be seen as definitely just a, a male-dominated environment and a male-dominated sport, they can go off and do that now and see somebody else doing that. Then, of course, that can have a ripple effect. And then they can be the change makers and role models for others in the future. And how can football help accomplish that? How, do you, how would you use football? Football is a powerful tool for community cohesion, social engagement, and I think that some of the nuances within football, such as developing social skills, communication, integration, whether that's engaging with girls, whether that's engaging with diverse groups of all protected characteristics, football's a great tool for doing that, and it definitely brings communities together. So I feel that it's definitely a good platform to help engage with adults from disability and mental health, empower girls and women too. Different types of mental health issues that I see within the work that I do are very wide ranging. The adults that attend the Wingate and Finchley mental health football program range from not being able to communicate verbally like my brother, however, be physically able and can understand and comprehend simple instructions. So if you were to say, pass me the ball, give eye contact, use body language and gestures, we have adults like my brother and others who are at that stage, which is where they have their support workers who attend and engage. Two, those with Down syndrome and those who um, may have an instability in their emotions, however, do not need their support worker inside the football area 
and their support workers would bring them. However, they just stand on the outside. And if there's a need, they're there at hand. So it's quite wide ranging. Some with depression who can come independently to the program and their support workers are on hand via phone if, if ever there's an issue. I did previously have some who were addicts who were on a recovery program. So it can, it, it, it can range. One very of the things wide range, it's very wide ranging. Yeah. One of the things I will say as part of this project in terms of the safeguarding, what, and I will openly say, I am not an expert. I'm not a trained psychologist. I have experience of being a carer. I have experience of being a teacher and understand some of the psychology in relation to young children and the general impact it can have and experience of being a young carer and in it with my brother who from schizophrenia, depression, you know, hearing voices and so on, um, violence, you know, suicide attempts. And so I've got a real range of 20 years of experience, personal experience there, which is what I then translate into the work that I do. So we don't have people who are wheelchair users purely because of access, because of the, the way that the non-league club is um, built. Unfortunately, we don't have wheelchair access. So um, we just, it is hard because of money and finances that we just, that we cannot provide. The other thing as well is if there are adults with extreme severe needs, if their support workers do not attend, unfortunately, those adults also cannot attend purely because of the safeguarding and the risk for others. If there is a, you know, an organization who has funding or a private organization that wants to give back, then definitely things that will be really helpful to sustain the project would be some finances to help with resourcing, you know, footballs, cones, bibs, um, me wanting to take them on stadium tours to pay for expenses for the volunteers and the coaches that do attend. And the other thing would be, and this is a larger cost, is actually finding a way of wheelchair access to allow those who are wheelchair users to also access the program. Those would be the two, two things if there are people listening. I really hope that message get, gets out and that we can achieve something in, well, now or in the future. Maybe you're not a professional carer, but you do have the caring experience and you have the understanding and you have the compassion and you have the empathy to make this, to do such great things with this project. We talked a little bit of the things that you really want to achieve so you can move circulations forward but is there a way i or the listener can support you in any way yes there is um, there are ways in which people can support one of the things for me at the moment is making sure people are aware whether that's parents carers support workers teachers educators of the child in mind resource it's newly published so i've it, i've only just finished writing the book um and it's it's been published for about three weeks it's available on amazon um which i'm the, i actually then distribute it out and send it off to, to people who, who want to purchase it but what would be really helpful i think for me is just to get the word out there um in that there is a resource for, for parents to sit with their it's like a workbook 
So parents can sit with their children, the teachers can use it in their school, people can use it as a one-to-one if they wish to. That would then help spread the word around mental health with young people and because of the current climate around how many children, which is alarming, one in three will be diagnosed or show symptoms of diagnosable mental health problems. So because of includes depression, right? Yes. Yeah. Because of now the high percentage, I just feel that if there is a resource that people can use, for me it's it's just ensuring that people do know that and it's not by any means to replace anything else it's certainly not a scheme of work that you would follow from one one end to another it's just to supplement and add so it's the child in mind would be a great way of supporting some of some of the work that i'm doing are you a book reader i was a book reader and i found now i just absolutely do not have the time Although, at the moment, the book that I have got is actually given to me by uh, Chris Ramsey, uh, my boss at QPR, who, um, him and Alex, Alex Carroll's our director of football, and he came off a course called The Effective Board Member. So Chris gave me his book, in fact, and it's called The Effective Board Member by Carl George. And it's so far been a fascinating read because it really goes through some of the behaviors and the psychology around different types of people who sit on the board so it's not a storybook but no, it's, it's more psychology yeah but i'm i'm re- going through that book at the moment and it's and i love it it's brilliant because it, it uses different analogies in terms of uh, emotional intelligence, identifying behaviors, mm-hmm. and it's making me reflect on if those behaviors are within myself. But also now when I look at people, I, I think Carl George uses these, he uses an animal analogy. So <laughs> I am sometimes thinking, oh, a, a little bit like the peacock perhaps, or think you, you must, you've got to be the bee. And it's, and it's funny, but actually uh, that book is, is fascinating. So I'm really enjoying going through that at the moment. Oh, I really love psychology. The last one I read was the latest of Dan Brown. Um, but it's when I look at my bookshelf, it's only psychology. <laughs> so I can relate a little bit. Well, I really want to thank you for being guests on the show. Thank I you. I really enjoyed it. I think you're an amazing inspiration for a lot of people. Well, let's get the word out um, that you do amazing uh, work and um, how people can help you achieve your goals. Thank you very much for asking me to take part. <laughs> Manisha, thank you for being a guest on the show. I wish you good luck with Sergalicious and look forward to our collaboration in the future. And I want to thank the Phoenixes too for tuning in. One of the wisest lessons in this episode is this quote of Manisha. Adversity and challenges are part of life. If they can develop confidence and resilience, they can overcome obstacles and become change makers. You can find the show notes, links and references at alianaloyega.com. But as you know, my name is quite difficult to spell. So you can also go to pavepodcast.com, even go to the same website. 
We will be back with another episode of the Paper Podcast. If you like this episode, please give it a rating in the iTunes store. You can also check us out at paperpodcast.com where you can find the show notes, more about the guests on the show, more about women's rights, information about my personal life story and how we can overcome adversity. While you are there, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Until the next episode of Paper Podcast. Let's work together and rise like a phoenix.